0: Welcome to Simplifying DevOps, a podcast sponsored by CDW. I'm your host, Rachel Airy. This series is dedicated to breaking down the concepts and methodologies of DevOps, as well as the world known as digital transformation. We're looking to cut through the noise and break down barriers of learning for individuals who may not be developers or engineers. Welcome back. Mitch and I are here today to dive into application modernization. Our special guest today is Tim Keating, Hyperscale Solutions Architect. Hey Tim, we're so happy to have you with us today. Thank you. So before we jump into today's topic, will you tell us a little bit about your background?
1: Sure, absolutely. Uh, So I am a Hyperscale Architect here at CDW, and what that means is that I work with our clients uh, to help them achieve positive business outcomes using the public cloud and cloud-native technologies.
0: Thanks, Tim. So tell us a little bit more about how you got interested in hyperscale and and kind of the evolution of what you've seen from the data center.
1: Sure. So in the early 2000s, most application workloads ran on bare metal uh, with direct attached storage. And what we saw were mostly Windows operating systems with some specialty applications uh, that were running on various flavors of Unix. Uh, a couple years later, uh, we witnessed the proliferation of server virtualization uh, and along with that, uh, shared storage in the form of NAS and SAN, uh, as well as various flavors of the Linux operating uh, system becoming uh, prevalent. Uh, we saw Linux gain a ton of popularity uh, throughout the aughts and the, and the tens until present day, when uh, uh, actually now uh, there's more instances of Linux workloads running on Microsoft Azure uh, than Windows. So, you know, huge, huge prominence. Um, around uh, 2006, uh, there was an online bookstore uh, called Amazon uh, that started a service called Elastic Compute Cloud. Uh, and the cloud, at, at least as, as most of us uh, perceive of it today, the public cloud anyway, uh, was born. So uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I started investigating uh, uh, in my spare time, uh, the uh, Amazon uh, Web Services uh, certification track, and uh, spent some time learning about that, uh, got certified uh, um, uh, in, in AWS, and from there, I had the opportunity to become CDW's first hyperscale architect and uh, jumped at that, at that offer. Uh, today, uh, in my capacity as hyperscale architect, I work with our clients on public cloud and cloud native technologies uh, like app containerization and Kubernetes.
2: Obviously, Rachel and I have talked about this before, there's been huge changes from an infrastructure standpoint and that's part of what you're talking on, going from you know, bare metal servers, and now there's this thing called cloud, which has essentially elastic compute. So there's been huge changes from an infrastructure standpoint. Can you talk about how that's impacted or how that has manifested itself from an application architecture standpoint?
1: Yeah, I mean, great question. So applications traditionally, were monolithic, uh, meaning that all of the application code uh, was deployed as a single process. So you might have in that application, you might have a, a front end or a, a web user interface, uh, a back end that had some business logic in it, uh, and then a, a database, right? So that would be kind of what you would think of as your uh, uh, traditional monolithic uh, application. And the, the, the nice thing about those monoliths is that they're a single code base. And, and for the most part, everything uh, that goes into their functionality is self-contained in that code base. Um, unfortunately, uh, that can be a, a limiting uh, factor uh, when it comes to uh, uh, application development and, and speed and agility. So the, the monolithic application is really most commonly associated with the waterfall development and deployment model, right? And and in that waterfall model, you might gather requirements up front by talking to users, and and um, uh, then then coding uh, those requirements into the application, and then waiting for uh, a good time to deploy those, right? And that might have to come during an outage window. So so typically, uh, what we would see is like a six to twelve month release cycle for waterfall. Uh, applications and you know your hope is that after that six months or 12 months that uh, the requirements that you gathered on the front end uh, were were a going to land but b still be relevant to the business. So a lot of risk uh, uh, throughout that uh, uh, throughout that waterfall development process and you know unfortunately uh, oftentimes uh, those features that you built in and waited so long for really missed the mark. So, you know, you wasted time, uh, you wasted money, and you didn't help uh, your user base uh, out at all. Another thing when you look at monolithic applications is it's really difficult to scale them. Uh, I mentioned that, that all of those components, the user interface, the business logic, and the, and the data layer are all built into the same code base. Uh, if you need one of those tiers to scale, uh, you, you have to scale uh, the monolithic app uh, uh, kind of, you know, uh, the whole thing uh, instead of just that subcomponent. So uh, really, it's it, it's it's very difficult to scale uh, a monolithic application. Uh, another thing is about monoliths is that uh, they're typically very tightly coupled uh, up to uh, an operating environment uh, environment or or uh, you know a server configuration. So they're very heavily dependent on the hardware. Uh, in the in the in the software that they're deployed on, so you know just a lot of inflexibility um, uh, in monoliths. Um, so uh, you know what customers have, have looked at uh, over the over the past several years uh, is modernizing uh, those applications. And when we talk about modernization of applications, uh, we've got this concept of the five R's, right? And and this is uh, rehosting. Uh, refactoring, re-architecting, rebuilding, or replacing. And that really is a process of of deciding, you know, can we take the existing code base uh, and can we make it better? Uh, Or is there just too much tribal knowledge and spaghetti code uh, built into that uh, application? And do we just need to completely rebuild it, right? Um, Or uh, do we have, you know, new, completely new functionality uh, that we want out of it? And so let's replace it. Right. So uh, a lot of decisions uh, when it when it comes down to, um, you know, what to do uh, with that old code.
0: Great, Tim. And so tell us a little bit more about as as you start to make those decisions for for what you do with that old code or, um, you know, how you go to refactor and and maybe rehome that application from its old legacy on-prem, kind of mega structure into something that's new and more agile. Talk to us about that, what does that look like? Usually we see that as microservices. Can you tell us
1: a little bit more? Yeah, well, great question, Rachel. So uh, if if we're able to break apart that monolithic application and and re-architect that, um, we've got the opportunity to to deploy that in in a microservices architecture. And for the, the sake of our discussion, um, you know, that's, the, that's the, uh, uh, where we see containerization and, and Kubernetes come in. So microservices are independently deployable services modeled around a business domain. So when we talk about microservices, that's more commonly associated uh, with an agile method of development and deployment. So uh, we're, we're looking at loosely coupled services that exist as endpoints uh, on the network and communicate uh, through, through APIs. Um, they're, they're packaged as lightweight containers um, and deployed typically uh, on, on Kubernetes. Uh, when we've got applications re-architected into microservices, that allows our teams to iterate in individual services without affecting other parts of the application. Uh, This also allows for fault isolation. So uh, we're able to uh, uh, do what they call circuit breaking, right? If a certain aspect of the application isn't working, that doesn't necessarily mean that the entire application uh, is going to go down. Um, We're able to iterate much faster and develop features much faster. Um, And we're also able to integrate security down to the code layer. Um, one of the things that we see when we start to deploy applications as microservices and start to deploy not just inside our four walls, but uh, in the public cloud, security starts to become a concern. It used to be that we only had to be concerned with perimeter security. Uh, Now, when we're deploying in the cloud, we really have to look at implementing security Uh, uh, with the application. So the security aspect of it uh, is integrated into the code and follows the application uh, wherever it goes.
0: Perfect, Tim. So what I heard is is that as we move into a more modern structure, we look to stitch together kind of a a modular structure of an application where you take its bits and pieces so that they are independent of each other and you can change them individually as the need fixes, maybe to fix a billing system without having to take the entire application down, um, allows you to be more agile and address problems as well as stitch in security more quickly and easily throughout the entire application. And it also lets you deploy it kind of anywhere, right? But really what I'm hearing is that that allow someone to take much better advantage of cloud and cloud services. They're able to more thoughtly, thoughtfully consume the cloud. Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of good aspects to, to microservices, right? The, the rapid iteration, uh, the ability to take advantage of cloud computing and scale rapidly up and down. Uh, being able to take advantage of the right language Uh, for that particular service, right? Instead of having to just deploy an application all uh, in the same language, uh, if we've got cross-functional teams that have different skill sets when it comes to programming languages, we can put all those people to work and take advantage uh, of that knowledge. And those teams are gonna be much smaller, typically in a microservices environment. Now, what I tell my customers, Uh, is that while microservices do have a lot of advantages, uh, there are some things about microservices that may not necessarily be good. Uh, Because microservices communicate uh, over the network um, and and through APIs, um, all of that network-based communication can expose shortcomings uh, in your networking. And microservices can become very complex uh, very quickly, uh, and it can be hard to diagnose where problems are occurring now, there's there's answers to that, um, but uh, you know you don't want to get into a situation where you're solving for one problem and creating three more uh, in its wake. So um, you, you know, really, uh, what I what I tell customers is, is we have to uh, uh, a we have to look at their business strategy and figure out uh, you know do they need to be able to scale more rapidly? Do they need to add functionality into their applications uh, a a lot more quickly uh, than they are, right? Are business conditions dictating the technology, right? Instead of the other way around, the technology can't dictate um, what they do from a business strategy uh, perspective.
2: Yeah, Tim, thanks for uh, sort of wrapping that all together. One of the things that Rachel and I have really been exploring on this podcast is this DevOps movement, um, the tools that people are uh, implementing, using to deploy software quicker, to update, modernize applications Mm -hmm. at the end of the day is to achieve a business goal. Um, And so when you're out there talking to customers, is this strictly, all new applications are going microservices. Our legacy applications starting to to look to be replatformed. Um, what do you sort of see in the wild, so to speak?
1: Well, s- certainly uh, uh, we see uh, folks looking at legacy or heritage applications and looking to put them uh, into the containers uh, uh, and When we talk about greenfield uh, applications, uh, the process is a little bit easier because there's not all that existing technical debt. Um, So um, we do more commonly see greenfield applications being built uh, in a cloud with a cloud native methodology than what we would call uh, brownfield. But um, you you know, there are uh, you know when it comes to um, you know what you might look at putting uh, into uh, a microservice. Um, we often say that, you know, Linux uh, is going to be better than Windows. Uh, uh, state Less applications over stateful applications. Uh, applications that would benefit uh, from web scale. Uh, you know, is, the, is the platform uh, that we're developing in or the application uh, that we're looking to deploy is it available uh, as, a, as a containerized microservice? Um, you, you know, and, and also, uh, does the end user have uh, a CI/CD pipeline uh, and do they employ automation? All of these things are you know, important considerations when we look at uh, what we're going to deploy as a, as a microservice or a container.
2: So Tim, is that where you see customers getting started? They're taking a look at maybe their Linux workloads, maybe those stateless applications, um, to sort of tackle first? Is that sort of the, the first steps to getting started on this journey?
1: Yeah, th- that is generally the best place to start. So, uh, you know, and we're, we're talking about uh, microservices and I've used the, the term uh, uh, container a couple of times. So it's, it's probably uh, worthwhile uh, talking about what a container is. So uh, a container uh, is a, a standard unit of software that packages up code and all of its dependencies so the application can run quickly and reliably uh, from one compute uh, environment to another. Uh, we usually hear the terms uh, container and Docker uh, used together or interchangeably. Um, so you know what what does that mean? Are they the same thing? Well, in, in 2013, uh, Docker Incorporated released Docker, uh, which is a lightweight operating system level platform-based on Linux containers. So Docker relies on the inherent capability of a Linux OS to run multiple isolated applications within the same operating system. If we compare that to the concept of virtualization, uh, virtualization uh, provides the ability to run multiple operating systems uh, on top of a single hypervisor. So when we talk about VMs, we're virtualizing the underlying hardware resources. Uh, When we talk about containers, we're virtualizing the underlying operating system. So if you look at uh, a deployment of, let's say 10 virtual machines, um, you're gonna have 10 instances, 10 full instances of an operating system. If you look at a deployment of 10 containerized workloads, you're going to have one operating system Right, one single shared kernel uh, for all of those ten containerized workloads uh, to share. Uh, what that means is you've got a much more lightweight, uh, faster to start, uh, much more, uh, much easier to scale uh, environment uh, with containers uh, compared to virtual machines.
0: Thanks, Tim. And you come, you know, you get a lot of other benefits that come into containers as well. You know, with um, changing the layer of the application that you're abstracting, that allows you to save on things like licensing costs. It allows you to have, you know, uh, a, a better able to to make things smaller, faster, stronger, and a tidier package. It's more portable, um, and and also able to to pack a lot more dense, more well, density in, into the application itself, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely, positively, that, that concept of, of bin packing, where uh, we're able to take advantage of the hardware uh, that we've got um, because we're not using all of that RAM and all of that storage capacity on those extra instances of, of the operating systems uh, compared to a virtual environment. So we've got that smaller compute pr- uh, footprint. That's great. Uh, lower licensing costs, because we're not uh, licensing as many instances of an operating system. Uh, The portability uh, and portability uh, translating into flexibility. Uh, Consider that if you build uh, a container, uh, for example, on Ubuntu Linux, uh, that can be deployed on Red Hat uh, with absolutely no changes. Um, So administrators can can move Application containers to any environment that they want, and start those workloads up in milliseconds, uh, as opposed to minutes. And um, when you have to rapidly scale up and down, uh, those those milliseconds uh, count, and they and they count in terms of dollars and cents. And that's something that's very very uh, important uh, to our clientele these days.
0: Thanks, Tim. So tell me, is is every application uh, the right use case for containerization, or is that something you take a, a more prescriptive approach with?
1: Well uh, Yeah, that's a great question. Absolutely a more prescriptive approach uh, because uh, app containerization is really a Linux concept. Um, uh, typically, I mean, we are seeing uh, Windows containerization uh, come around and... Uh, both Docker and Kubernetes, uh, something we'll get into in just a little bit, uh, are now supporting Windows containerization. Um, you know, we don't see uh, that much of a use case at this point for containerizing Windows applications. Um, applications that need to maintain state, and specifically uh, talking about databases, uh, can be difficult uh, in a containerized Uh, world. Um, You really have to look at the specific database uh, to decide whether or not it can be a good candidate uh, for containerization. Uh, What we do see, though, uh, is when we look at uh, cloud-native databases, things like uh, Cassandra, uh, for example, um, uh, those databases that will scale uh, horizontally um, and are meant for the cloud, um We see those being much better candidates for virtualization, and there are ways to speak to state in containers, but you know kind of like you referred to as, as a starting point, not necessarily generally, uh, we see the stateless apps uh, being uh, much better candidates uh, for containerization and in any app that uh, can benefit from rapid scale up and scale down, you know thinking of web servers, for example, uh, we talk about in the example of, the, of, the, of the, uh, the customer that runs a Super Bowl ad, right? So, uh, you know, come 9 p.m. on Sunday, uh, Super Bowl Sunday night, uh, they're going to need some rapid scale more than likely, uh, but for the other 364 days of the year, they might not need that. Uh, that's where uh, app containerization uh, can be a, a huge benefit. And if your application uh, doesn't fit into that into that mold, um, then it indeed might not be uh, a good uh, a good candidate. But with the resources uh, that that our clientele have available to them uh, in our ITS, our integrated technology solutions uh, organization, uh, we can help them uh, work through that decision making process and help them get those workloads containerized. Um, So, uh, we've got, uh, you know, we've got all the resources that uh, our our customers need to make those decisions.
2: Good. That's good to hear, Tim. Um, Right, as as new technologies sort of emerge and containers are sort of the latest and greatest platform to start running applications on, um, I think our customers are sort of struggling through how to figure them out, uh, how to see ROI, ROI out of leveraging the technology and, it's good to know that there's some some help there. Uh, you started touching on some of the buzzwords like Docker and Kubernetes. Um, can you go a little bit deeper into that? I think Kubernetes is probably the number one buzzword that I hear uh, sort of in the industry right now. Can you touch on that? What is it? How does it pertain to containers? Where did it come from? Um, stuff like that.
1: Sure. So... I think the easiest analogy to draw uh, for Kubernetes is think of Kubernetes like vCenter, uh, but for containers. Uh, uh, Kubernetes can run on just about any flavor of Linux uh, and it can run on just about any hardware. Uh, I'm in the middle of building a Kubernetes cluster in my home lab uh, based on Raspberry Pis. Uh, uh, So uh, while Docker delivered uh, that container runtime, Uh, and the tools to manage the life cycle of a container, Uh, the industry realized that it needed a platform to manage uh, potentially thousands of containers running across hundreds of virtual machines. Now, note that I said virtual machines as opposed to bare metal. It's important to remember that Kubernetes only requires infrastructure, okay? And infrastructure is a broad term. That infrastructure can be uh, virtual servers, bare metal, or Uh, in the public cloud. So in in June of 2014, uh, Google uh, launched an open source software platform to manage the containers at scale. They called it Kubernetes, uh, sometimes abbreviated K8s. Uh, That was based on its own internal container management system called Borg. Uh, Kubernetes is what enables us to deploy, scale, and and manage uh, containers at scale. In 2015, uh, Kubernetes 1.0 was contributed to the Linux Foundation, uh, which then uh, formed the Cloud Native Compute Foundation, or the CNCF, uh, to manage and govern that project. Uh, Today, uh, the CNCF is the custodian of of multiple open source projects related to containers. Uh, Things like Containerd, Envoy, Prometheus, and hundreds uh, of others. Uh, Given its relative simplicity, its accessibility, and its ability to scale, uh, Kubernetes went on to become the most preferred container management platform. Uh, It's one of the fastest growing open source projects in the history of computing. Uh, Modern applications and greenfield applications uh, increasingly use it. Um, It's led to the rise of of enterprise, enterprise container management platforms like Google Anthos, Red Hat OpenShift, and VMware Tanzu. There's also been an increase in managed container as a service offerings in the public cloud, uh, such as uh, Amazon Elastic Kubernetes Service, Azure Kubernetes Service, or AKS, and Google Kubernetes Engine, or GKE. So the cool thing about Kubernetes is that everything in Kubernetes is a a declarative configuration object that represents the desired state of a system. Uh, This is an alternative to an imperative configuration uh, where the state of the world is defined by the execution of a series of instructions rather than a declaration of the desired state. Uh, As an example with the imperative approach, the configuration would say run A, uh, then run B, then run C uh, to achieve a configuration. Uh, In a declarative uh, configuration model, Uh, uh, you have Kubernetes declare, you tell Kubernetes that the number of replicas of my application equals two, and it's Kubernetes' job uh, to make sure that the number of replicas always equals two. So uh, think of Kubernetes as helping with things like resource management, workload scheduling, service discovery, health checks, auto-scaling, and updates and upgrades of the Kubernetes uh, environment.
2: So there's some special sauce, so to speak, behind the the curtain that Kubernetes is orchestrating. Is that is that a change for your typical IT operations folks who'd like to be hands-on um, and, you know, going in and setting up the environment and making sure everything looks nice and pretty and know exactly what's going on? Is, is, is that a big sure. switch for people? Well,
1: well, it, it, is, it is a bit, um, and, 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 and don't get me wrong. Um, there's still uh, plenty to do uh, in, in a Kubernetes environment, but what we have found, and I think definitely, um, you know, you all coming from a DevOps background, is that um, you, you know? None of this is possible without letting go a little bit. And what I what I mean by that is that you know, automation. Um, you, you know, you cannot have a cloud native environment uh, without having automation in your environment. And that's you know, everything from automating configuration management to automating uh, 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 integrated uh, uh, testing uh, to automating. Uh, the potential deployment of applications, um, you know, so the administrator uh, has to, to a certain extent, uh, be able to let go and allow Kubernetes to drive. That being said, um, y- you know, there's, there's, like I said, there's still plenty to do uh, in a Kubernetes environment, and, uh, you know, there's absolutely uh, challenges in managing uh, a Kubernetes uh, uh, environment. One of the biggest things that I come across uh, with customers these days is just plain and simple uh, there's a skills gap. Uh, I think that uh, most of the folks that uh, we've been talking to for the last, uh, you know, good decade uh, are pretty well versed in uh, managing virtual environments, uh, managing uh, 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 physical hardware, you know, switches, routers, uh, and, and so on. Um, this recent move toward automation and software-defined everything, and this transition into a cloud-native world with open-source software and Kubernetes, um, has really uh, exposed um, a, a, a tremendous need for uh, for those skills, uh, those skills with open-source software. Uh, those command line uh, uh, skills. Uh, you, you know, you can get a graphical user interface uh, with Kubernetes, but for the most part, everything is done uh, using Linux commands uh, uh, from the command line. So, um, you know, it, it's really not possible to kind of muddle your way through things like you would uh, in, a, in, a, in a GUI uh, type environment. Um, You know, I think uh, also understanding where uh, Kubernetes and containerization uh, is appropriate. Uh, It's not a cure-all. You can't, uh, you know, you can't just, uh, you know, throw Kubernetes at something and expect to achieve uh, results, right? Um, Things like managing the network, uh, managing ingress and egress uh, out of your cluster and and out of your cloud environment, whether it's a public uh, or a private environment. Uh, questions around storage. Uh, questions around uh, backup. Uh, so there's there's a, a lot of challenges that uh, you know that that customers uh, encounter. Uh, but uh, the good news uh, is that um, there's a tremendous uh, uh, community around open source software around Kubernetes. Uh, so uh, the the Kubernetes.io website uh, is a great place to go for resources. And um, again, going back to uh, CDW's ITS organization and our digital velocity solutions, uh, we have the ability to uh, help customers through the entire modernization journey uh, into cloud and cloud native technologies and help them with with ongoing uh, day two operations uh, as well.
0: Perfect, Tim. And as you've kind of elaborated on, this is not just a trend, this is a paradigm shift that I think we're seeing um, and has really exploded over the last five years or so. Mm-hmm. Look down the road, what do the next five years look like?
1: So uh, there's been a, just a, a tremendous uh, explosion uh, in uh, the adoption of Kubernetes and open source software. Uh, in the next five years, uh, I think it's, it's going to be amazing. Uh, there's a major release of Kubernetes uh, every quarter. Uh, so started off with version 1.0, uh, version 1.19 uh, was just released. Um, So, uh, the tremendous community and constantly, uh, um, you know, being uh, iterated upon and and, and new features uh, and functionality coming out, a tremendous uh, community of of developers and partners uh, that are uh, contributing to uh, that Cloud Native Compute Foundation or the CNCF, so um, just so many uh, 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 cross-functional capabilities coming out from a security, a networking, a storage, uh, uh, ingress and egress perspective. Um, so much going on uh, in, in, in that community. But uh, Kelsey Hightower of Google uh, has been quoted as saying uh, that the cloud made the hypervisor disappear and Kubernetes uh, will be next. So I don't think he really meant that Kubernetes would disappear. Uh, I think what he meant was that Kubernetes is just becoming ubiquitous. Uh, in other words, it's, it's so prevalent uh, that it's, it's almost getting to the point where uh, it, it would no longer uh, be noticed. Uh, you know, it's, it's a platform uh, for building platforms. Uh, I see Kubernetes becoming easier to manage uh, through easier to consume interfaces and front ends. Uh, VMware, uh, with their Tanzu offering, Uh, has actually incorporated Kubernetes into their code base. And now you can manage Kubernetes through vSphere and you can manage VMs through the Kubernetes interface. Uh, We're also seeing uh, the popularity of Kubernetes uh, at the edge. Uh, I referred to uh, the cluster of Raspberry Pis that I'm working on uh, in my home lab. Um, The Intel Nook, uh, for example, there's a a large uh, fast food uh, uh, company uh, with uh, locations all around the country that's got over 2,000 uh, Kubernetes clusters uh, that they use to run their entire operation. And it's all deployed on Intel Nooks. Uh, we're also seeing uh, cloud partners like Google uh, with their Anthos offering, making their cloud services offerings like BigQuery and some of their artificial intelligence interfaces like speech recognition API available uh, on-prem as well as other clouds. So we're seeing Kubernetes being used to kind of abstract uh, infrastructure and whether that infrastructure is servers uh, in your own data center or whether that infrastructure uh, is is, uh, infrastructure in any one of uh, a number of public clouds. Um, we're seeing Kubernetes uh, right there, kind of becoming the de facto standard for building that that platform around. Um, I also see uh, that skills adoption uh, catching up. Uh, uh, the uh, Linux Foundation has got a great uh, certification program uh, around the uh, Certified uh, Kubernetes Administrator. Um, so uh, you know, I, I really I see Kubernetes becoming as widespread. Uh, as uh, a VMware has, right? So, um, and, and you asked about the next five years. I personally think that we're going to see uh, a much uh, more rapid rise of Kubernetes uh, than, believe it or not, than we did of VMware. So I think that's all going to happen even quicker uh, than five years. So I just can't wait to see what happens.
0: Yeah, me too. I heard a really interesting analogy not too long ago that referenced or compared Kubernetes basically to the invention of electricity and modernizing electricity back into the homes. And and that might sound kind of ridiculous, but it was a really interesting concept of when electricity became an easy to consume commodity, it changed the daily lives of individuals and allowed entirely new services and, you know, products, if you will, that were never available before. Think about things like vacuum cleaners and refrigerators and how that impacted, you know, the need to no longer have to go to the market every day because you could keep food for a week. And I think we're going to start to see that reverberate through organizations as the adoption of Kubernetes and, and Advantages that you can utilize, like microservices, which is really, I think, the kind of uh, secret sauce, cool thing about containers is allowing you to stitch together containers to make an application more agile and and able to change as your whims need. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of really cool things come about.
1: Oh, I Rachel, I could, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, the uh, the analogy about electricity is great uh, because, again, uh, you know, when we when if we look at uh, Kubernetes being able to be deployed anywhere, kind of becoming that, that ubiquitous platform that we're very easily able to deploy application containers on top of uh, and, and move those containers uh, anywhere. Uh, and, and uh, y- you know, we start to see uh, Kubernetes being deployed at the edge, artificial intelligence at the edge. Um, NVIDIA, as a matter of fact, uh, just acquired ARM right? The manufacturers of the Raspberry Pi. So, uh, you know, we're going to start to see um, a lot of artificial intelligence happening at the edge. Um, and that's really been one of, you know, one of the big promises that we've been waiting to see come true over the last several years uh, is, uh, you know, putting that compute where the data is. Right. Um, so uh, yeah, very, very exciting stuff and, and can't see, uh, can't wait to see where it goes.
0: I agree. Well, I, I'm going to speak for Mitch and say that I I can already tell that I'd like to bring you back um, and and dive into these topics a little more. I'd really love to talk about some of the use cases that we know in the wild. For example, the fast food chain um, that you referenced is always fascinating and and a great one to dive into. So I would love to have you back, talk in a little bit more about some of the specifics and, and really some of the advantages that we see organizations using to take advantage of this because they're really stripping away from the pack. And that's really
1: what it's all about. Yeah. Well, I'd love to come back, Rachel. Uh, I had a great time. Uh, Pleasure talking with you and Mitch, and I look forward to the next time that we get together.
0: We do too. Thank you. Thanks for listening with us here at Simplifying DevOps. We hope you tune in for more episodes as we continue to dive down this path of all things DevOps and understand more about the paradigm shift that we've seen revolutionize the IT world.